Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris's troisième arrondissement. Welcome to Paris. Uh, thank you. Thank you. The American writer with the uh, French-sounding name, uh, Laurence uh, uh, Lomer. Yeah. Yeah. Are you French? I'm German. Hi. Guten Morgen. <laughs> I go back a long time, so I don't know the language. Alles gut in Frankreich. Right. Yes. Anyway, I'm glad we're able to finally connect, got over our technical No, it's fabulous, fabulous. Wow. So this is great. So we can jump right in. Uh, I'll do a quick introduction, and then uh, and we're recording, and I can clean up the beginning of this when we get okay. started. Well, welcome to Paris at Café Terrence. My guest today is Laurence uh, Leomer, uh, author most re well recently of Capote's Women, soon to be an eight-part uh, series on which network? FX and probably Hulu and Di and Disney all across the world. And when is this going to happen? Uh, early next year. Wonderful. And it's starring star Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, uh, Christina Flockhart. Uh, well, those first two were enough to get that. me to the yeah, TV. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you're sure. a cheap date. <laughs> Very cheap date. <laughs> and and most recently, Hitchcock's uh, Blondes, the unforgettable women behind the legendary director's dark obsession. Um why don't we first uh, define terms? Uh, everyone has heard the expression Hitchcock blonde, but we're looking at about eight women that we're going to talk about today, all of which are, all of whom are quite beautiful. Although, I mean, I guess if you sneak Ingrid in, she's really not a blonde in the way we see the others. But what are, what are the commonalities and the differences that uh, define these women for Hitchcock and for us? Well, he thought a, a, a blonde was the ultimate woman, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, alas, there aren't that many blondes in the world. There are many true blondes, right? They're around the B Baltic. Well, I seem uh, to find them all. Personally. You seem to find them all, and, you, uh, you yeah. see a, and you see a bottle of peroxide next to <laughs> Well, L'Oreal Trentois, I mentioned <laughs> it in my, in my memoir, and I got no <laughs> product placement money from L'Oreal. Wow, wow. Uh, yeah, unfortunately. Well, but anyway, go ahead, that, continue. Yeah. So he just tried to choose them, but they weren't quite blonde. Maybe they changed the, their, their hair a little bit, but that was his obsession. Well, I would say just to go back to Mr. Hitchcock, a uh, a repressed Catholic in England, if that's maybe not be oxymoronic or multiply redundant, but he, I think he got this taste for looseness in Berlin in Weimar when he was shooting uh, silent films. Uh, let's talk about that. If you agree with that that characterization. Yeah, well, he, German expression. That was the most exciting era in 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 one of the most exciting years in filmmaking in Germany in the early thirties. He he in the twenties he was there. But in any case, he picked up so much from those films, and uh, the life, the decadent life of Berlin at that point, that affected him very much too. He went out one evening to a nightclub where. Said oh, I wow. didn't hear you. Oh wow! Wow. <laughs> so I explained to her you went off into the bar to get something appropriate uh, to drink. Uh, just before we start to talk about the films and, and the women, uh, we could describe this uh, his behavior as obsessive or perversive. Uh, his certainly his dialogue uh, was somewhat salacious. Uh, perhaps he anticipated Harvey Weinstein without ever uh, going through any any of the act. Uh, 
But why don't we begin with my favorite of all of these blondes, which was Madeline Carroll. And I would I would give up uh, a sizable amount of money to be uh, handcuffed to her for an evening. Oh, and a, oh yeah, not bad. Only an evening? Well, what I can do, I, I can do a 24. I have enough money for 24 <laughs> okay. hours. But I, I mean, to me, uh, she, you know, it's it's the icy veneer. And obviously, underneath all that, there's great, great passion. Uh, let's talk about but the. But that's, that's Hitchcock. Well, that's Hitchcock's point. Absolutely. That these women, these, these women that look uh, kind of sedate and schoolmarmish, just just touch them and they explode. He didn't like. He wouldn't like Gina Lola Bridget. He would. He wouldn't like Italians who thinks their sexuality was out front. He didn't like that. It was something yeah. else. And he thought you just touch her and that and then she explodes. Well, probably, probably true. But I, 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 if if I were to touch Madeline Carroll, I would explode. I mean, right, uh, right. perhaps one of the most beautiful women to ever come out of England, and certainly. Uh, but let's talk about her, and let's talk about. I mean, the Thirty Nine Steps. He saw her in a silent film pr uh, prior to this one. I'm drawing a blank on the actor's name, who was somewhat un inappropriate as well. Do you remember? You know the film I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, and his wife, his would-be wife, was involved with that. Yeah, exactly. And the actor again was. I'm drawing a blank too. Okay, well, I have your book nearby. While while, yeah, while I'm looking I should for do that, it too. but uh, the Thirty Nine Steps, uh, I guess there's a whole pattern emerging uh, with somebody in this, in the case of Robert Donat, on uh, accidentally falling into a nightmare and trying to extricate himself. Um, no, and the, and and the and the woman is the the woman goes through that. The woman is put through hell. She's handcuffed. The, the water. She's they 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 run and they run and they run and 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 it turns out okay. But the woman has to go through that gauntlet. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now the scene where she's removing her stockings could be one of the least sexiest, uh, most erotic film scenes I've ever seen in a film where no sex was involved. Well, you you have the same taste. You have the same taste I have. It doesn't have to be explicit to be that that that, that kind of uh, exact. It's just kind of an amazing scene. And obviously, told her to to, to take her stockings off very very slowly and yeah. display her legs. Uh, it, it, talk about them a little bit about that film because I think it has it. It's somewhat uh, of a template for a lot that followed. Based on a John Buchan novel, but as I, I mentioned, uh, uh, the only thing it has in, in common with the, uh, the the book is the title. After that, he just kind of throws it all away. Well, again, this, again, this is not uncommon either. Uh, it, 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 it's 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 uh, a similar plot to uh, uh, North by Northwest, where mm -hmm. a man is falsely accused. Uh, and that and, and that was Cary Grant for murder. But this is this is being a spy, and he's chased he's chased all around by by these these bad people. He has to escape, and he escapes with her and her with and handcuffs, and it finally comes out okay. Yeah, I, I watch it over and over and over. There's yeah. so many iconic elements. The the scene where he's making uh, kippers for uh, Lucy Mannheim, who's later married to Marius Goring in his apartment. He's wearing this ma magnificent uh, coat. A very, very light herringbone weave. It must have been cream-colored in real right. life, and he never takes it off. I suspect he thinks it's so beautiful. My God, let's just keep <laughs> it on, you know. Uh, and then the scene when they when he's on the bridge over the Firth of Forth, uh, another uh, I, I, beginnings I think of his films. We have Mount Rushmore, 
uh, we have, uh, you know, we saw a saboteur, for example, when he's right, on, right. The, uh, Eif- on the on the Eiffel Tower, on on the Statue of Liberty. So I think a lot of elements that came into his films later on uh, began in this film. Yeah, well, he didn't. I mean, the thing is, he he basically is a silent filmmaker. He begins in the he begins in the twenties and he goes on for fifty years, and that's what he wants to do. Dialogue is just sort of this intrusion to the scenes he's scenes he's creating, and you can go back to the Lodger. The, mm-hmm. which uh, which I think is a magnificent film. You can watch now. You don't watch it just as a story of curiosity. Novella. Right. Yeah, you watch it because you, you, you enjoy it. Do you, I mean, uh, bringing up silent film into the conversation, are, are you uh, a fan? I, I know that uh, our, our friend uh, uh, Pat McGilligan is, and having later on watched so many sound films, when you watch a silent film, can you separate your... Uh, your mind from the absence of dialogue and just enjoy what you're seeing on the screen and uh, perhaps add the dialogue in your mind. No, no, I had the dialogue. It, it, he's so good. I don't think it's a sound film. Mm-hmm. I, I hear, I hear <laughs> the dialogue. <laughs> Even though it's absent. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, so yeah, Madeline, uh, Madeline was absolutely superb and uh, had a, a limited career. I just saw her in a very bad movie the other night. The general died at dawn. I had watched the bitter tea of general yen, which I still enjoy. Yeah. Uh, and I found that I, the beginning was fine. And then it just kind of petered out, but I, I stayed through the film just to watch Madeline, Marilyn, who was, well, and later of course, in the prisoner of Zenda. No, but she was one of the major stars in the early forties. She mm-hmm. just disappeared. Thirties, I guess it was. I yeah. Think, yeah. So then there's a little jump. It seems that he, you know, the lady vanishes. I don't I remember. It was Margaret right. Blackwood, who was not a blonde. Um, and then we really move up. I guess the next significant film would be Notorious. Right. Uh, written by Ben Hecht. So you're you're working with a, you know, a champion uh, of dialogue. And as I said, it's kind of difficult. Uh, maybe we could talk about how he got around the casting. Right? He was working for Selznick, so... There was that connection, but not at all the blondes that we later on see or we see as somewhat iconic. Talk about that film and about his relationship with Ingrid. Well, he treated each of these women very differently. Some of them he was almost, and, and, it, and he was he was he was class oriented and a snob the way only a lower middle class Brit can be, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Britain is the most class conscious uh, society any, anywhere, and so he's uh, uh, the son of a green grocer. Right. And he's Irish. He has to get rid of that. I mean, the Brits don't like the Irish, as I well know. And so uh, he, 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 he really liked her. And, and he'd always, in the beginning, he'd, he'd bring the actress over to his house for dinner. And each one he'd treat differently. And Ingrid he treated as a real friend. And he just he adored her. Was that because of her? Was she the kind of character who would not tolerate his salacious dialogue or somehow projected? Oh, come that- on. She was wild. She was wild. Okay. She was wild. I mean, people ask me, what do I think about these? What, what do I feel about these actors? I said, I'd, I'd like to go drinking with Ingrid. I'd like to sleep with Grace Kelly. And I'd like to marry Eva Marie Saint. Well, yeah, I, I love Eva Marie Saint. We'll, we'll come back to her. Okay. Uh, no, but so, yeah, Ingrid and Notorious, and again, with Carrie, this is with Carrie Grant. Right. Uh, of course, uh, the impeccable Claude Rains. No one like Claude Rains. Right. Uh, and, and once again, there's this sense of uh, betrayal, as we later see uh, with even Maurice Saint in North by Northwest. Um, Ingrid comes from, shall we say, somewhat uh, 
an unimpeccable background of father being a, being a Nazi and, uh, and she perhaps having somewhat of an, an active love life. Uh, yeah. and yet, go ahead. And she's put, and again, she's put through hell. Right. Yeah. She's put through hell. She, she, she's, she's the, the Americans wanted to become a spy for them. And she marries this Nazi and she puts through hell and, and Claude Rain's mother poisons her. And Madame then, Constantine. Yeah. And who, 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 another thing about Hitchcock is he had a tortured relationship with his mother. And when, and he had every morning, every evening, he had to stand, stand beneath, behind, at her bed, bed before she goes to bed. And when she died, from then on, every every mother in his films was a monster, and 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 notorious. She's she's worse than her, her son, as she was. Uh, I want to go. Let's talk about two other women in his life. Uh, you know, one was blonde, uh, Joan Harrison, and Alma Revel, his wife. Uh, just talk, let's begin with Alma. Talk about their relationship and how it Im impacted his work, and particularly his work with all of these women. Well, Alma started in the film industry as a 16-year-old, and uh, she lived about a block from the studios there. And uh, she went on to become a, a screenwriter. She's an editor, extremely talented person. And she gave it all up. For him to advance his career, he never, never would have succeeded as, as high and as long as he did without her. And what influence did she have? Well, let's, let's we we're just talking about Notorious, and uh, there were, were they already? Were they? I'm trying to think. The Thirty Nine Steps was she already in the picture? Yes, but you know, but we don't know. That's the point. They were so close. There's no record of the number of things she said to him, and she was so subtle in working with him. But her touch is on all of his films. I was very fortunate. Uh, and we move on. We move on from Ingrid, and I think if we're looking chronologically, I guess it would be Grace coming up. Uh, first in, in Dial M for Murder, uh, with uh, John Williams, who later appeared in To Catch a Thief as the uh, as the policeman, uh, and Anthony Dawson, who later uh, was shot by uh, Sean Connery in Dr. No. Huh. Uh, this, I believe, was based on a stage play, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And so she, let's, and she's... Let's, I think that was, that was their first film together. So let's talk about that yes, film. Yes, yeah. And how did... Uh, where did he discover Grace, who, as you write, I mean, there were, uh, as a kid in Brooklyn, there were words to describe women like Grace. I don't think she ever met a man she didn't want to sleep with. Yeah, but you, but you, but do you know that when you looked at it, you wouldn't think so. the ethereal kind of nun-like yeah. looks to her. Oh yeah, but, the, but there's the, she's the classic Hitchcock woman that you touch her and she goes crazy, and that and, and, and that was probably well, her case. I think it was in real it was life. True. It that was true. It, yeah, it wasn't true. just on the film. But let's talk about Dial M, uh, set, set okay. in London. Uh, where she, uh, let's describe that film for us in brief. Well, she's uh, married to this, this, this she, she, she is uh, having an affair. She had an affair. With Robert and, Cummings. Of with, with Robert Cummings, right. Oh. And uh, she, uh, she, she's ended the affair, but her husband wants to kill her. He's going to, he sets up a murder mm -hmm. and, and has this person come to, the, come to the apartment in the evening to strangle her. And she and she fights this person and kills him, and then she's she's she is considered a murderer, and she's 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 convicted and sent to prison for life. How's that for Gauntlet to have to go through? <laughs> and, and and where did he discover Grace? He saw her, but he saw her. she she she. she uh, uh, she had been in. Uh, uh, he, he, he 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 saw clips of her, and uh, he. Uh, on stage uh, or in, in, in film? In, in film. Okay. And 
Oh, I can't, what is wrong with me? No, 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 it's okay. We're, we're, we're getting to that age, Lawrence. Okay, stop just for a second. I am. Okay, what's the film with uh, the Western, the Great Western? Oh, uh, yeah, uh, High Noon. High Noon. Okay, start again. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Grace was in High, in, in high Noon. Right, right, right. The Quaker wife of... Uh, she, played, uh, she played this mousy Quaker wife, okay? And Hitchcock saw that. He, he liked her as an actress, but he hated that film. Mm-hmm. And he hated that she looked, uh, her, her, you know, she was so toned down. Sure. So he didn't want that. He wanted her to look kind of sexually inviting, which which he, which he did in Dal M for Murder and the mm-hmm. other, and other two films they made together. I mean, how much of that was his? I mean, obviously, you start with a great subject. I mean, Grace was beautiful. Uh, how much did he did he work at her at all? Was that just, he just saw her as she was, and she delivered who she was in real life physically? You know, he didn't, in most, sometimes he would, I mean, uh, with Tippy Hedren, he spent a lot of time with her. Mm-hmm. But 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 he thought of actors as pieces on a chessboard that you just move around. He didn't really spend too much time uh, working with them. It's kind of amazing he got the performances he did doing that. Yeah, I mean, he's, I guess he famously didn't say that he treats all actors like cattle, like treats actors like cattle. What am I, you know what I'm going Yeah, you're right. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he yeah. said he, he treats them like cattle, as cattle. R- right, right. Oh, so we move on from that one, and then we get into a, a much bigger and important film, uh, which is uh, Vertigo, with uh, right. the, the incredible titles by Saul Bass. Yeah, that, exactly. You know, Saul Bass and, and Maurice Binder, two people who did remarkable work to, you know, and of course we have Bernard Herrmann's music, which is such a backdrop to all of his films and, and, and so powerful. I remember watching that and I have vertigo myself. I mean, and right. not, not to the extent that, that Stewart had it, but I was, I was dizzy from the minute the credits ran. And I well, was, the, aren't those fantastic credits at the amazing. beginning? You amazing. just can't, you just keep those in your head. As great a film as that was, you just keep those credits in the, at the, in the beginning in your head. Yeah, well, you get, you know, it's it, for a guy who I didn't think is being musical, you know, Bernard Herrmann, for example, did the music to Citizen Kane, but whatever he saw, uh, you you can feel that pulse in all of his films, his later films, the color films, uh, between the uh, titles by Bass, the music by Bernard Herrmann at the very beginning, uh, within a minute, you're plunged into the atmosphere of the film. No, and the greatness of it is you don't even think it's music. Right. Yeah. You know, you just—it's—it's just—it's just a natural accompaniment of this. Well, uh, yeah, an exercise I once did with David Thompson in San Francisco. We uh, we did something uh, on the influence of uh, of song on non musical film. We shut out the lights and showed several sequences of different movies without the music, and then played it again. And you know, if you were to look at what we just discussed, those titles without music, without Herman's thing, it's—it's uh, it's nothing. Yeah, right, exactly. They absolutely have to be put together uh, right. to create that mood, and you know, in the absence of in the absence of sound, um, it would be a very very different film. Even though, you exactly. say, as you say, so it's exactly. quite wonderful. But let's let's talk a little bit about that film. And this is shot in San Francisco, and uh, and and L and L A. On L A. I mean, I lived. I remember they go into uh, into Podesta Valdaki's uh, flower shop, which right, existed right. when I got there in the seventies, and. They had dinner at Ernie's, which I did on, on one occasion. 
so much. They went to Ransom Hops, another non-existent department store. I mean, to watch that film is is to like look at San Francisco in the you know prior to to hit Ashbury, just to see yeah. what the city was like. So he used those uh, uh, those images and those buildings and those locations uh, to great effect to create that. And then you go back to the the blonde thing where he has her. He has Kim back and oh, I moved up to Kim, uh, you know, back and forth between being a somewhat brown or auburn haired and then uh, being a blonde again as he uh, kind of redid her. And I believe her name was Madeline also for not to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and she was magnificent in that film and he didn't appreciate it. And he stupidly, stupidly, when the film was coming out, put down her performance, which, which certainly didn't help people wanted to go see the movie, yeah. but she, I think she should have gotten an Academy Award nomination for that. Well, I think I, she was, I'm sorry. I interviewed her. Yeah, I, I think she's a much better actress than she got credit for. I mean, uh, you know, obviously she was under Harry Cohn's uh, right. auspices, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, and she was a, a real knockout in Pushover, where she had no acting with Fred McMurray. She had no acting uh, preparation whatsoever. Uh, and then I loved her in a film uh, called uh, with Kirk Douglas, uh, Strangers When We Meet. And, uh, and again, uh, somewhat subtle, the blonde bombshell, but uh, again, uh, subtle and, and within herself. And yeah, I thought she was I thought she was remarkable in this film. Well, she has bipolar disease. Okay. She's had it all her life. She wasn't diagnosed until she left the film industry. Mm -hmm. But she, she'd be on she would be on the set. And she's supposed to come out for her, her scene, first scene in the morning, and she wouldn't come out. And people think, what an egomaniac she yeah, is. Yeah. You know, what a person. Right. She's just too depressed. She's just sitting here. She can't get out of her chair. How, do you, how did she work through it? With a constant struggle, which nobody knew about. And this is before we had medication? Before we yeah, had... Exactly. Exactly. Before you would dare say that about yourself. Right. Yeah. No, that, that, that I, I wasn't aware of that. But he got he got a great performance out of her, as I say, and that and the film, the film holds. It's quite, uh, uh, you know, I I, I, I I do watch it from time to time. And then to jump ahead to uh, let's go back to uh, well, we'll get two more Grace films to talk about. Uh, Cornell Woolrich, who wrote any number of uh, scenarios under different uh, different names, uh, wrote the treatment for Rear Window, uh, which I, I guess. Stewart was somewhat like a, a little bit like Robert Kappa, somebody who was an adventurous photographer running around the world. And I don't think she's ever looked more spectacular as in that in that Edith head dress she's wearing with the black sweater. Uh, just just magnificent. No, no, it's unbelievable. And what's wrong with Jimmy Stewart? He doesn't realize what he has. <laughs> I always like Jimmy. I like Jimmy as a young guy. He was a, he's kind of a handsome character. I loved him in Mr. Smith and some of his early comedies that he uh, that he did, you know, I guess in, uh, uh, well, with Cary Grant in the Philadelphia story. But uh, no, but she more than holds her own. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I think I may have mentioned in our brief chat yesterday, I, I I can't get enough of Thelma Ritter. I mean, Thelma, two minutes of Thelma Ritter on screen yeah, is yeah, enough to make the, make a movie sing. Yeah, but 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 in terms of Grace, yeah, uh, the Country Girl, right? Who, who, the category. Yeah, she is incredible in that. And you, you just you just see if she hadn't gone off and married Rainier, what mm -hmm. kind of career she would have had. She would have aged in all different kinds of roles and would have probably been one of the great American actresses. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I agree. But you know, they're extremely uh, extremely worth uh, worth watching even even today. 
uh, next, I guess, next up in that in that that group of women is uh, Janet Lee in uh, in Psycho, and uh, I remember when it opened in New York when I was a teenager. You know, no one would be admitted uh, after the film had started. You know, all of that right. That was his. That was his idea. 60s, uh, type of, uh, of of marketing, uh, right. and there she and there she was. Well, look, she was. She was a midstream actress. She was not, she wasn't at the top row. No. And she comes in there, and her personal life was a disaster. Uh, the marriage with Tony Curtis, which started so brilliantly, was pretty much his end. Uh, he was having all kinds of affairs. She was drinking, and she wasn't a good drinker. And her father committed suicide. Okay. So then she gets this role, and she pours all of her personal life into Marion Crane into that character. Now again, it's 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 what it's what Hitchcock loves. There's not that much dialogue. Mm-hmm. When she when she drives out of Phoenix up the highway, uh, we don't. She, she hardly speaks, but we know her. We know exactly. The audience knows exactly what she's feeling and thinking. And when a and when a highway patrolman stops her mm-hmm. with these dark sunglasses on, we're terrified for her. The guy, the, the hop hasn't done anything wrong, but we're terrified. No, yeah, I think you're, she, you, you sense who she is. And as you say, this may very well have come out of her personal experiences that she was able to channel what her life was like, right. uh, you know, onto the screen. Uh, but that, uh, that film and my God, you know, what it, uh, it to some degree, I, I changed the way that films were made in many respects, because this one always, I wouldn't call this like a King Brothers film or a Sam Arcoff film, uh, right. But uh, you, you're going into areas that uh, mainstream uh, Hollywood films did not begin to uh, uh, look into. And I said that I, I believe at some level that opened up the, uh, the, the filmmaking in Hollywood to, to be freer, to take No, until, until then, these, quote unquote, this type of movie was shown in the drive-in. These, 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 these low-level films, and, and the reality is that the, the audiences love them, and that was very troubling to the, to, to the mainstream Hollywood uh, producers. Yeah, I mean, Andy, Andy Hardy was not living in this particular no. community. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> if he lived anywhere. Right. <laughs> for that for that point, and I'd admit to disparage Sam Arkoff, who never, who along with Roger Corman, never made a film that didn't make money, right? And uh, probably uh, well, Hitchcock, carried. Well, Hitchcock too. I mean, the thing is, Hitchcock, Hitchcock lived in in the commercial center of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. He didn't think he was making masterpieces. He didn't, he didn't sit there and have the pretension about what he was doing, but he 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 managed to do that, and he he knew he had to sell. Early on, he, he looked in these these early movie palaces in London and mm-hmm. saw they were full full of women, and the women and that that were by themselves, and women who brought their husbands and lovers. And he knew he had to make films with characters that women would like. No, yeah, exactly. Uh, and yeah, because if we think of these women in a, in a sense for what they represent, you'd think these are women that's gonna they're gonna turn on guys, which right, they did. Right, you right. know, you would so if you, for for a second you think that that's the the, the idea, but in fact, as you say, uh, women were an enormous part of that audience, and they probably dragged their husbands to see some of these films, or it was saw it on an afternoon with their girlfriends before they went off uh, to tea. And you had there had to be some ability to identify, I suspect, you know, with these women, uh, or identify to what they were and what they were not themselves to kind of right. and it, jump and, up to that. And, it, and in terms of Hitchcock's greatness, he was considered just a hack. He, he, he you remember on uh, Alfred Hitchcock's. Pres-
presents. Sure. It was a half hour, immensely popular most of te- television show. And he would begin. He some, I remember once he's in a barrel, he's supposed to be naked in a barrel when he introduces the film. Now, can you see Martin Scorsese doing that? I don't think so. So, but 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 but, it, but Hitchcock would do that. And, well, I used and, to watch. I used to watch that on Sunday night with my mother, who was born in Casablanca right, right. and went to her grave still with her her funny accent, and, and she was very amused. I don't know if she watched the the program with the same satisfaction as she did with his opening and closing, uh, you know, scenarios. Uh, no, and it wasn't. It, it wasn't until Travaux, the great French yeah, director, right. your colleague there, um, came to Hollywood and spent a week. He did, he didn't his his English wasn't very good. He had an interpreter, and for a whole week, all day long, interviewed Hitchcock and turned it into a book. Uh, uh, to a book. True. What, what is it? I'm trying to think of. The series of interviews. It's, it says different, different titles, different, but true, true, Hitchcock on Truffaut, Hitchcock on Truffaut, different right. titles. But it, anybody who wants to be a filmmaker has that film on, the, has that book in the library, often underlined from page after page. That's how, how intimate. That, that's what a gift Truffaut gave Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. He showed just how much detail. He showed what he did and how he did it, and, it, and it's a great tribute. And and again, Truffaut was there, there at the AFI tribute to Hitchcock at the end. He deserved to be there. And it's, it's what a colleague should do. Yeah. Uh, no, going back to, uh, to Truffaut, as long as you, you bring him up, uh, the amazing thing with Truffaut and all of those guys who were part of the new wave uh, is that all the American films that you and I would love, you know, Red River, uh, uh, only Angels Have Wings, the early Billy Wilder stuff. None of this was available in France during the occupation. And because films did not open and platform around the world simultaneously, they didn't see these films until after after the war. Wow. Uh, And then to go, to begin to now suddenly see these films and begin to to learn so much from them and incorporate them into their work was, was quite amazing. Wow, that's fascinating. Isn't it? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. I'm here to learn. I'm here to learn from you. Well, a little bit, but they went to the streets. You look at Henri de Kai, for example, uh, shooting uh, the 400 blows. Look at yeah. uh All of a sudden, when they, they saw Monument Valley, you could go out into the streets and make a film. You didn't have to be studio bound. But it looks wow. like it caught up. I know we can do another program on Truffaut. But you, you mentioned Alfred Hitchcock presents, which brings us back to Joan Harrison. And so you know, you talk about the strength of Alma. Uh, Joan was a powerhouse as well. Uh, who coincidentally also happened to be a knockout blonde and was his uh, associate producer on a number of films and was the producer on the Alfred Hitchcock Presents a series. Yeah, her, uh, her biographer, Christina Lane, is doing an event with me on the 18th in, 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 in uh, Boca Raton. And I love that book that brought uh, other, other things to, do, to, write, to write a book. To me, one of the most, most noble is to rescue somebody from obscurity, obscurity who deserves to be remembered. And that's what she did. I mean, uh, Joan was a very important. She starts as a secretary. Barley, she could, she could hardly type. And Rice, she becomes a screenwriter and a director of her and, and a producer and a director. Yeah, and those those shows were half an hour on Sundays. I, I rem- uh, many of them were based on Roald Dahl uh, short stories. Yeah. You know, a dip in the pool right. with, um, you know, what I'm talking about. I, I'm trying. To, I can see him, and I'm trying to blank on his name. Who dives? Keenan Wynn, who dives over the uh, dives into the ocean, expecting this nice old lady to stop the ship, which she doesn't do. Uh, no, it was just wonderful. Tightly, tightly wound, yeah, uh, and really worth watching. And I, you know, many of them reside in my brain uh, since the fifties when I was like eight or nine years old. 
Wow. So well done. And she had so much control. Well, we, we get to, I guess, the last of these women, which is Tippi Hedren. And this probably as much as anything defines his genius for finding someone to uh, to play a role that had had no, in her case, had no acting experience. So talk a little bit about her. And I, th- I think that she's been unfairly uh, chastised for her performance. I, I saw her somewhat as a cipher in this film, and uh, she was there for everything to kind of run through her without her having to be uh, overly demonstrative in terms of her acting. But that's my take. No, I agree with that. But but how how does he find her? He's watching yeah. today today show one morning, and he sees this ad for this diet diet drink. She walks across the screen, and he says, "You know, get find out who she is." And he signed her up. And she thought, "Gee, I I've never had any acting experience. Maybe I'll get a part, a small part in Alfred Hitchcock's Presents, the television." Program. Well, she was a single mother with of Melanie, and and needed to make a living. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, although she'd been one of the top models in America for a long time, Mm -hmm. but in her early 30s, those days were gone. And he spends more time with her than he did with any any of the other actresses. I mean, we've got the transcripts. He he taped these sessions with her, which he he does all kinds of things to make sure she does a great job. And she does a terrific job. And and she deserves all kind of credit for in, in both the films, the job she does. Well, I think also he had some understanding of how to make money because uh, he cast Rod Taylor, who I liked for what he was. He was in a film called Hotel. I think he was on a TV series uh, in the early 50s. The title escapes me. Uh, you know, a, a rugged guy, but not a not a great actor and certainly not an expensive actor. Right. So he has, he has a non-actress that needs a job, an actor who's a mid, mid-level right, right, that right. Hollywood thing, and he makes this frightening film out of it. Well, but exactly. of course, let's not forget the great Jessica Tandy. Yes, exactly. But who was not making a lot of money in this film, I'm certain. Right, right. No question. Well, you know, we, we, we've forgotten one blonde in this whole scenario because, and I don't think you, if you mentioned it in the book, I must have missed it. Go back to Joan Fontaine in Suspicion. Uh, remember much I about did, that? I, yeah, I didn't do that in my book. Okay, I, I, yeah, right. But, no, but the only, one, the, the one we haven't talked about is Eva Marie Saint. Ah, my how did I forget Eva Marie Saint? Eva Marie Saint, I, I, uh, I live with one. I'm currently living with one uh, who fit Eva Marie Saint. Eva Marie Saint. You're living, me, you're living with a saint. Well, uh, well, she's living with me, so yes. Okay. <laughs> Twice a week, so she does get saintly status. Absolutely. Okay. You know. Okay. But uh, no, but I, how can I forget Eva Marie? Uh, the, the scene where they're. Uh, Having this dialogue, it reminds me a little bit of Bogart and Bacall in The Big Sleep when they're on the train. Yeah. And this double entendre dialogue is going back and forth. It's exquisite. Yeah. And now, and now we had that same scene. Uh, you know, she'd be grabbing his leg. Oh, right? his leg under the table. God knows yeah, what exactly. she'd be grabbing. Exactly. So it's, it's so subtle. And, you know, and also, and the, the thing with her, as elegant as she was in this film, her previous film was uh, On the Waterfront, where she's just a. You know, a, a Catholic girl in uh, in Hoboken, uh, no money, no, you know, no elegance. Well, elegance is inbred, no style. And no, here she is, d- this glamorous beauty in, in North by Northwest. Just like Grace Kelly in High Noon, yeah. uh, he he didn't... Uh... He didn't. He didn't like her. Like her on the water. She's kind of mousy. Said that oh, same sure. kind of mousy look. And he has to elevate her in his well, mind. She's a, you know, she's a street 
uh, she's a street kid, you know, Catholic family, uh, very yeah. blue collar. Her father was a, a longshoreman. I mean, we we knew. I grew up in Brooklyn, so we knew those people. There's nothing wrong with those girls. That was just a representative of the life that they were that they were living. It was a hard scrabble life. You know, I have I have great admiration for her on, on several on several levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she was a very calculating woman, and people think, oh gosh, that's terrible. She's calculating. No, it's 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 can be an admirable trait with her. She she got in a career in, on television in New York. She was lonely. She had a little apartment. She wanted to get married. She wanted to ha- find a husband. And she, she didn't want to marry an actor. And she marries a producer. And they have this they have this beautiful uh, life together. She has kids. She doesn't want to give up her family for her career. She would do one movie a year. So she wouldn't be at the upper, higher level of stardom. Uh, when he died, she lives. She's ninety nine years old now. And uh, she lives by herself on Wilshire Boulevard. And her daughter was not too happy with me because I said that she was living alone. And I don't, it doesn't mean that there's a bad daughter. If right. I'm 99 and can live by myself, it's not because my daughter wouldn't help with me. And it's great that she you has to be alone. Lunch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Uh, maybe that's your next book. And right. I, I, how can I forget Eva? Because uh, I mean, to me, she just epitomizes. Uh, so many of those qualities that I admire in women, uh, uh, you know, apart from what, what Hitchcock was doing, just a, uh, I, so I think that it, look at her, for example, uh, elegance is inbred or inherent, perhaps yeah. a better way to say it. You know, uh, even when we say that a pair of jeans and a sweatshirt is going to look elegant. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and some other Hollywood, uh, you know, bimbo blonde in a in a Valentino dress is going to look like a bimbo blonde in a Valentino dress. You, you got it. You know, you can't, uh, you, you know, it, it's like... Uh, Kind people, uh, you're nice because if you're not nice, your grandmother will kick your ass. Right. You're kind because it comes from your heart. Yeah, and, I got you. Uh, yeah, and I, th- I think you read her right. So I, I don't know how, how I <laughs> didn't get to uh, get to her. And I just watched the movie the other night, and it's just, you know, it's one- and I love James Mason, that that voice. My God. You know, and the, and the early Martin Landau. Uh, and Martin Landau played that. To be gay in his mind, okay? Oh, absolutely. Over the top. Now, but I, I don't think I, I don't think anybody knew in 1959 because there were no gays in 1959. No, I I I have a lousy gay detector, and I didn't <laughs> think I didn't think he was gay. He, to him, he was playing over the top gay. And just another point: all the all of the we had less the than gay, a minute, so go. the gay characters in the films are all evil. Yeah. Well, I, I don't want you to get cut off. This has been great. We could do another hour at some point in the future. Uh, and if you're ever in Paris, by all means, let me know, and we'll do an event, a live no, event. No, I'm believe me, I come to Paris every year. I'll give you a call. Give me, a, give me a heads up, and we'll organize something. So I'm doing okay, something with, a, with with Pat on the 13th uh, uh, on the Woody Allen book that may never get published. Well, push Shiver to be it deserves to be published. He's absolutely, incredible. Absolutely, person. but you know we're living in a in a woke world. Yeah, and, we definitely uh, are. It's just it's it's hideous. It's been a yeah. pleasure. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Look forward to seeing you. I look forward okay. to next week's coverage of your book. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us. And for all things Parisian, visit my website, paris-expat.com. That's paris-expat.com. And subscribe to my six free weekly newsletters. Until next time, I'm Terrence Kalenter, your American friend in Paris.